0: Hey everybody, this is Raleigh, and welcome to episode one of the Religion Cast podcast. Hopefully you tuned in for our episode zero, where we spoke about what our plans are, things that we hope to talk about in future episodes, and the reasons why we're doing this. Scott, tell us a little bit about what we're talking about today.
1: Well, today, uh, let's pose a scenario for the, the listener. Okay. Uh, let's say that you grab a Bible.
0: Okay, okay. doing it now. That's
1: flipping, Bible. flipping, grabbing right, flipping, Bibles. flipping Open up.
0: Let's say you. I have, the, uh, uh, I have the standard old NIV over here. I've got a Jewish Bible,
1: and I have a Roman Catholic kind of canon that we'll talk about. Uh, let's say you flip to the end of Nehemiah, so the last page of Nehemiah. All right.
0: Oh Nehemiah. no, page four fifty-five for me. Don't okay. these page numbers in the <laughs> Bible. All right, I am at the end of Nehemiah. What next?
1: That's the question. What comes next? <laughs> well,
0: looks like I've got. Esther after Nehemiah.
2: I have First Chronicles. And I've got Tobit
1: after mine. So mm, Weird. Yeah, that's, a, that's kind of a, a tricky issue, and that's what we want to talk about. Why do we have three different things that come next?
2: Right, so this issue of what comes next uh, in your particular Bible that you happen to be using, whether it's the Protestant Bible Raleigh grabbed, the Jewish Bible I had, or the Catholic Bible that Scott grabbed, is referred to as the issue of cannon. That's cannon with one N in the middle, not two. Two cannons go...
0: So we're not talking about, like, (laughs) cannons, right?
2: No. uh, Riley prepared, like, this whole thing on violence and religion. (laughs)
0: Oh, that is such a bummer.
2: Yeah, we'll do a gunpowder episode later.
0: All right. Never. Never? Well, maybe. Why are we even doing this? Gunpowder. (laughs) (laughs) So... So, so what, is, what is a canon?
2: So a canon okay. is basically an official list of anything, really, but when we talk about it in reference to the Bible, it's those group that group of books, because remember, a Bible isn't a book, it's a library, mm-hmm. that group of books that each different religious tradition has identified as sacred, whatever so before, that means.
0: Before we get into that a little bit, can you explain what that means, how the Bible is a library instead of a single book?
2: Yeah, so if you pick up any Bible and you open it, you'll notice that there are lots of different uh, titles in the table of contents. Those are not chapter titles. Those are book titles. Mm-hmm. And these books come from the span of a couple thousand years, depending on which one you picked up. I don't like that. Like 1,500 years, let's oh, say. That's probably more fair. That sounds more fair. And they come from a lot of different authors. I'm not even going to ballpark a figure because I don't yeah. think I could do it justice off the top of my head. Under
1: th- under 90? No. Yeah. Under 100?
2: No. I mean, if you take the Psalms, there's 150 of those. Under yeah.
0: 9 we'll, we'll billion? We'll put it this way. The yes, thing that, under 9 billion. We'll put it this way. The thing that Tyler and I study the most carefully is the...
2: Uh, the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch. The,
0: the the people that supposedly wrote the Torah and just trying to analyze these things. And this has been a major area of study within Hebrew Bible scholarship for, what, 150 years now? Maybe
2: people have Probably been a little more dedicating that, their yeah.
0: lives literally to this and Thomas on-
2: Paine had something to say yeah. about it
0: and honestly I don't want to say that we don't know anything about it but just for the amount of time that's been spent on this one thing the amount of knowledge we have is really like not that high you know I mean it would you'd think over that much time that we would have much more knowledge of what's going on but it's a difficult thing
2: well I think we have more than no knowledge well, yeah more
0: than no but just not not as much as we would like
2: yeah but even I mean to get back to the issue at hand, even in the first five books of the Bible. I mean, scholars have identified, at the very least, eight or nine different authors working within those first five books of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll talk about all that. That's composition, and it's not really what we're here to talk about today. We'll talk about that another time. But it's always important to keep in mind that your Bible didn't drop down out of the sky on a single day. It wasn't written by a single person. It's several different books from different different time periods. It it doesn't
0: exist in a vacuum, you know. Right.
1: well, one of the easier ways to explain that is to talk about what the word Bible means because <laughs> the word Bible just comes from yeah. the Give Greek word. Our
0: uh our Greek expert over here.
1: Well, I don't want to sound like I know everything about of Greek. the three of us. But if you'll listen to me, uh, <laughs> the word Bible just comes from the Greek word for book and, uh, and in this which instance, is, which the is plural. What? Biblos for singular, biblia okay. for plural. And we're talking about a lot of different books here, a collection of books. So... So that's the short way to say a we're talking about a lot of books.
2: Right. So the issue that we want to talk about today in relationship to canon is if a Bible is a lot of books, how did the ones that are in Bibles get there? Who put mm-hmm. them there? When did that happen? And, and why? And why? Right. We'll we'll probably do more guessing than yeah. <laughs> solid answering on that, but
0: we'll 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 give it our best shot.
2: So uh, one of the most important things to remember when you're talking about canons of the Bible, because there is more than one, there's not just a single canon of the Bible. Probably one of the more important distinctions to keep in mind is that the Jewish Bible is going to look very different from any of the Christian Bibles we'll talk about simply by virtue of not including anything from the New Testament in its canon. So if you ever grab a Jewish Bible, you're not going to find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, etc. It's just what... Christians refer to as the Old Testament.
0: What we in the biz call Hebrew Bible.
2: Yes. Now, the reason I hesitated to use the word Old Testament uh, to describe the Hebrew Bible, as Raleigh said, as we usually call it in the biz, is because the term Old Testament um, has...
0: It's a little bit loaded, right? I mean, it's a a little bit of a loaded term for some people.
2: It's a very loaded term. So first of all, uh, one good reason to avoid using it is that if you're talking to a Jewish person, it's not the Old Testament to them. It's just the Bible. Yeah. Um, but you can't just call it the Bible because then you cause confusion for the other side of the aisle where when you say Bible, some people are going to visualize just the Hebrew Bible and other members of your audience are going to visualize the Christian Bible. Mm -hmm. So we go with Hebrew Bible as kind of a middle ground. And another kind of issue with the old Testament phrase is that old is kind of a value judgment, uh, in our society and in the society from which the term originated. So, you know, like if you say, "Do you want the old version of the iPad versus the new version of the iPad?" Yeah. It's pretty clear which yeah. one you're going to choose. The old,
0: the old version is pretty sweet, but
2: right, but it's not the newest version.
0: Yeah. It doesn't have the newest version of uh, Flappy Bird on it. So.
2: <laughs> I love Flappy Bird.
0: <laughs> so you, you obviously are going to go with the new one. It, it, it seems to unknowingly devalue the the, the Hebrew Bible a little bit. And it's not something that people are doing intentionally, right. it's, it's a phrase that you're raised with and that you've used to refer to it your entire life. But we should know that if we're speaking to somebody of the Jewish faith, that referring to it as the Hebrew Bible might be a little bit more tactful.
1: And especially because Old Testament is a is a term that stems out of, you know, the Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. Because Testament, we're talking about covenants here, and when you talk about the Old Covenant, you are automatically implying there is a new covenant. And if that's not part of your book, and that's not part of your tradition, mm-hmm. then, you know... The whole like, term is nonsensical. It's like, yeah. what is the new one? I mean, I've, I've got the I one... I have the that, only one. I <laughs> have the one. Yeah, I have the <laughs> covenant. What are you talking about? So so you just have to kind of be aware of, you know, the difference when you do call it whatever you call it, whether you call it Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. You're just being aware of that issue is a good thing.
2: But even setting aside the differences between Judaism and Christianity, which many of you may be out there, like, nodding your heads going, yeah, that makes sense. They're two different religions. They'd have two different Bibles... Even within Christianity, though, there's not agreement on what books belong in the Bible.
0: Yeah, several different Bibles, right?
2: Yes, there's at least three, Mm -hmm. and really, if we're being, I mean, totally accurate, you have at least four different biblical canyons, canons, (laughs) canyons. Yeah, that's how great the divide is. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of is. Boom. So, because you also, so the four major canons of the Christian Church, and in this podcast, we're probably mostly going to focus on three of them, are Mm -hmm. the Protestant canon. Uh, the Roman Catholic canon and the Eastern Orthodox canon. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one, the one we won't talk about as much, is the canon of the Ethiopic Orthodox Church, mm-hmm. which is something totally different. Yeah.
0: There's, no, there's no disrespect to the Ethiopic Church? It's no, just...
2: not at all. I, we just don't. It's a lot of books, and we don't have a lot of expertise in that particular exactly. area.
0: So let's start off with the Protestant canon.
2: Well, the Protestant canon is a nice place to start because of the three Christian canons we'll be talking about, it has the smallest of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And in terms of content, it lines itself up with the Hebrew Bible. So the um, texts that you would find in a Jewish Bible are also the texts that Protestant Christians would include in their Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also the youngest of the Christian canons. The Protestant canon has only been around for, what, 500 years now? Yeah. 450, really? Mm -hmm.
1: Around there, yeah.
2: Yeah, so the Protestant canon arose... if we're going to talk about how do you get this canon, we'll work backwards from yeah, the Protestant canon be then. That'll probably work there. So
0: what, what led to the Protestant canon being established in the way that it was? Give us some historical context. Yeah, so
2: the context for this is the Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther is leading his charge to reform the Roman Catholic Church, fails at it, instead splits off separately.
1: Can you clarify exactly what you mean by it fails?
2: Right, so when I say fail, I don't mean like, the church never changed or anything like that. But Martin Luther's original intent wasn't to create a splinter group, separate form of Christianity. Yeah, definitely not. But that's what ends up happening. Anyway, so as part of the process of the Reformation, Luther begins to reevaluate uh, the Christian canon. And he begins throwing out books from the Bible. Like what? Like books like Tobit, Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, The Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, Baruch. Yeah, I actually think that's it. And he also tries yeah. to throw out several books from the New Testament, Scott, right?
1: He's got a couple problems with things like Revelation or James. He's he's mm-hmm. not a big fan of some
0: and, things. So. And what's his reasoning behind trying to throw these books out?
2: Well, it it differs. For the New Testament, I think the motivation was largely um, theological. theological.
1: Good, good in sync there.
2: Yeah, we're, Scott and I think alike.
1: But as far as kind of the other works that he wants to throw out, it looks like he's coming back more into a, uh, a set canon. He's got a canon in mind. And what canon would that be?
2: So he's right. He's trying to bring Christianity back to its quote-unquote original foundations, and so he aligns himself with the Jewish canon when he mm-hmm. sets his canon. Uh, but it's also probably not a coincidence that some of the church practices and beliefs that he disproved of happen to be based off of passages in the books that he throws out of the uh, Roman Catholic canon. Mm-hmm. So Protestants ended up with a Old Testament canon that looks remarkably similar to the Jewish canon, albeit in a very different order, and we'll Mm -hmm. talk about where that order comes from later. Um, But the books that Luther takes out end up becoming known as, according to Protestants, the Apocrypha, Mm -hmm. whereas in the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church, both of which retain and treasure those books... Um, they're referred to as deuterocanonical, which is a nice, big, fancy, long
1: word. Which the first half means... Second. And the second half means... Canon. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) (laughs) So wait, deuterocanonical and apocryphal, we're talking about the same thing here?
2: Well, yes and no. Yes in the sense that they refer usually to the same set of books, and no in the sense that they don't mean the same thing. When a Protestant calls these books the Apocrypha, they're making a judgment statement about whether they belong in the canon or not and definitively falling on the side of not. These are books that are are hidden or should be hidden. Um, whereas in the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Church, when they say deuterocanonical, they are definitely and officially affirming the canonicity of these books, saying they belong in the Bible alongside every other book. Um, and I think it's important to remember as well that you know when we talk about these lists of the Bible... This Protestant Reformation, where Luther starts pulling these books out, he can do that because there is no official church position on what is and isn't in the Bible at this point, and it's not until after the Protestant Reformation at the Council of Trent, which lasted from 1545 to 1563, making mm-hmm. it officially the longest yeah. board meeting ever. Yeah, write it down. <laughs>
0: write it down. There will be a test later.
2: Um, but that's when the Roman Catholic Church first officially announces its position, declaring... Those books, they're what they're now calling deuterocanonical books, as definitely part of the canon, and they're doing that in response is, to Luther's well, kicking well, them out. If
0: you think about it, which is really crazy,
2: right? That's really I mean, that's,
0: late. Fifteen hundred years into
2: Christianity's yeah, life,
0: where it's not determined until at that point what books actually officially belong in the Bible,
2: right? And this isn't to say that people were just like everybody had a different Bible and it was a free Bible party. There had been like an a set agreed upon used canon, like in fact. There just hadn't been an official church position on it yeah. um in legislation in a legislative sense um until then
1: but even when we say the term like deuterocanonical, it's not that simple, is it
2: No, it's not because even though both Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christians use this term, they mean two very different things by it um for the Roman Catholic when they say deuterocanonical, the emphasis is on the deutero or second part where they believe that although these things belong in the canon, that they don't have quite the same as the status as the things that are in the first canon or things that all Christians would acknowledge as Mm -hmm. canonical. Uh, Whereas for the Eastern Orthodox Church, the emphasis is definitely on the canonical half of that equation. For them, deuterocanonical simply indicates those books that other people disagree about, but which are for them just as valued and integral a part of their Bible as any other book. Um, And that largely comes from a very key difference between the Eastern Orthodox Church and every other branch of Christianity, which is what they believe the Bible is in the first place. Mm -hmm.
0: But before we get into that, Tyler, uh, why does the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, a church that a lot of people in the West aren't very familiar with at all, even though it has a huge number of people, why does the Eastern Orthodox Bible tend to have even more books than the Roman Catholic Bible does?
2: Well, that's actually part of the same question. It's not a different question at all. It all it all comes back to, again, like I said, the Eastern Orthodox Church defines its Old Testament in a very different way from other branches of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that whereas Protestants, as we've already said, try to align their Bible with the their Old Testament, rather, with the canon of the Hebrew Bible used by Judaism, mm-hmm. um and the Roman Catholic Church recognizes the Hebrew Bible as uh, the basis from which translation should be made and the basis of any study that's done of the Bible, for the Eastern Orthodox Church, this simply is not the case. Um, Instead, they hold the Septuagint, which I'll explain what that word means in Mm -hmm. just a second. They hold the Septuagint to be the only uh, inspired version of the Old Testament for use in Christian churches. Um, The Septuagint is actually a really neat thing. It's a whole separate field of studies and biblical studies And what the Septuagint is, is it's basically a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It was done sometime or started sometime around 200 BCE, Mm -hmm. uh, finished, we think, sometime around 100 CE, and it is a Greek translation of both uh, the canonical books that all Jews and Christians would recognize, but it also included other books, such as 1st and 2nd Maccabees, and 3rd and 4th Maccabees, and 2nd Esdras, and books of these natures. So by including the Septuagint and calling that the inspired word of God for the Christian churches, the Eastern Orthodox automatically include these extra, quote-unquote extra, not extra for them, books in their canon. Mm -hmm. So it all comes down to a very different definition of what the Bible should even be. Should it be the Hebrew Bible or should it be this Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible? Mm -hmm. And the conflict over that is a story for a whole podcast on its own. And
0: speaking of conflict, something that we should keep in mind is for a lot of people, um, belonging to a, uh, Protestant church or, um, growing up in the, in a Protestant environment, um, especially in the Southeastern United States, spoiler alert, that's where we live. There aren't a lot of Catholic people here and there definitely aren't a lot of Eastern Orthodox people here. So these, these alternative biblical canons are something that people might not be well aware of. But when you move outside of this area of the country, uh, you're going to see a lot more churches, a lot more Catholic churches, and moving into Eastern Europe, see a lot of Eastern Orthodox churches where this is the standard. This has been the standard for their entire life.
2: Right, and it's crazy even uh, in Protestantism, really, just because Luther took these books out of the Bible, that doesn't mean that Protestants threw them away and never looked at them again. Um, They were an important part of most Protestant Bibles. Uh, When the King James Version was translated into English, that's a Protestant translation of the Bible, it included the apocryphal books. It didn't put them in the Old Testament, kept them in a separate section in between the Old and New Testaments, but they were still there. And in fact, it's only in the last about a hundred years that Protestant Bibles have stopped printing the apocryphal books and that people have kind of ceased to become aware of such great stories as those found in Tobit or in Judith Or in Maccabees. Or in Maccabees, which is crazy stuff.
0: Yeah. And and when you really think about, I mean, this is not a, a judgment position at all. A lot of people hold the King James Bible in very, very, very high regard, but they're not aware of this thing that was present in it for so long.
2: Right. Right. And it's also, I mean, even moving beyond the King James version of the Bible, it's simply fact that for the majority of Christianity's existence, the majority of Christians and continuing into the modern day use and read these books and yet again in the protestant community and especially in the southeast united states these books are virtually unknown
1: so up until this point we've really been talking about a modern the modern period you know the last 500 years
0: and that might sound kind of silly considering that it was 500 years ago but when you consider the time periods that scott and tyler and i tend to study this is about 1800 years after what we would academically consider interesting Well, not me. Not you, but uh, but Tyler and I.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this might as well be contemporary stuff for us. Um,
1: But we haven't even gotten all the way back to, you know, the apostolic fathers of the church. uh, Well,
0: uh, explain what the apostolic fathers are really quickly if we're just throwing terms out.
1: When I say apostolic fathers, what I mean is I mean the, the people who the original apostles designated to carry on uh, church positions, ecclesiastical
0: positions. So the the apostles of the apostles.
1: Sure, the apostles of the apostles. That's a good way to think about it.
2: And the interesting thing about these guys is that a lot of them left writings behind that were very valued in the early Christian church, so much so that some of them actually are included in some of our oldest copies of the New Testament, our oldest manuscripts, right alongside the books that later became accepted mm-hmm. as canonical.
0: Like
1: what? Yeah. So we've got like letters of Clement, uh, letters of Ignatius. We've also got the Shepherd of Hermi- Hermas, which is really
2: long but yeah, really good,
1: really and really popular as well. Yes. Uh And that one's almost like a last, last-ditch decision. Uh, of whether to include it in the canon or not.
2: And it's really interesting. The reason given for not including it is, uh, or one of the arguments is that it was written too recently. And Mm -hmm. so that kind of gives us an insight into how these early church people were thinking about what is in and what is out. And so one of the things they were thinking about was date. So for
0: reference, do we know when exactly it was written when we say uh, it was written too recently?
2: Well, that's the issue is that we don't know when the shepherd of Hermas was written and Mm -hmm. they didn't either. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they're saying, already, right, that's too too recent to yeah. be a writing that belongs in the New Testament. But
0: even for reference, even further, when do we think the Book of John was written?
2: So John, uh I, last I checked, the consistent consensus is sometime between ninety and one ten CE. Okay, okay? okay, and that would run right on the, the, right on the track. That would have been,
0: been the latest written gospel. Yes. So well, just just to give them within the New Testament yeah. canon that gets canonized. Right. Exactly, yeah. but just giving us reference for what would be considered too uh, too late.
2: Right, but the thing the gospel of John has going for it and that's actually a really good thing to bring up is uh th- its authorship was attributed to somebody who actually knew Jesus. And mm-hmm. so in addition to when these books were written, the other thing that people began to look at was who wrote them. Yeah. And they decided that apostle of the apostles, while that's pretty sweet and maybe they have some nice things to say, it's not the same as being an apostle yourself. Yeah.
1: And another really important criteria that you know the early church was using for canonization Uh, was Orthodox teaching. Yes, Uh, very important. And that one's one that kind of is inescapable, and depending on how cynical you are, you can kind of say, well, maybe they kicked out some stuff that was probably okay, but, you know.
0: So I, I hate to keep doing this, keep asking you to clarify and clarify and clarify, but we've spoken about the Eastern Orthodox Church, and you just mentioned orthodoxy, but just for our listeners, can you just give us what the actual term orthodox means, the way that we use it in scholarship?
2: Okay, so that's that's complicated, and but you bring up a good point. When Scott said orthodox, just then he was using it uh, simply as a word that means right thinking, mm-hmm. um, and we use the term orthodox to indicate like the mainstream thought of the church. If something can be uh, something like that can be identified, we refer to the Eastern Orthodox. That's why I like using this whole clumsy phrase rather mm-hmm. than just saying orthodox. The Eastern Orthodox is a separate branch of Christianity that's identified as something that separated itself from the Roman Catholic church. And it's kind of an East versus West split. But and in when fact, they... in the Eastern Orthodox church, they actually refer to themselves as the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. So, but to get back to what Scott was saying, when he said that they chose books also based on, as we've said so far, date authorship and orthodox teaching scott mentioned uh, you know that that can be viewed as a little cynical but something that kind of balanced it out another criterion that they were using to determine these things was widest possible usage like how used were these books among all the christian communities that existed at that time and so maybe if something didn't quite seem like it was on board with the normal mainstream christian thought but it was used in almost every church it got to stay in um, and i think that's especially the case with something like um The Revelation of St. John, Mm -hmm. uh, which I'm using that very, again, long title very purposefully because it was often in competition with a similar book known as The Revelation of Peter.
1: So we've been using the term they a lot. Like, they've done this. You know, this is when they did it.
2: Or they were using these criteria.
1: Yeah, and and we haven't really spelled out who they are.
2: Or when they were.
1: Yeah, good. (laughs) Uh, But we are continuing to say they Yeah,
2: we are. We're going to keep it up as long as possible. No. Uh,
1: But... You know, two of the main characters that we're talking about are uh, both Augustine, or Augustine, uh, and Athanasius.
0: Um,
2: Who were two very important church leaders that lived in the 4th century, and for Augustine towards the beginning of the 5th as well.
0: And if you're not aware of who they are, a lot of their teachings you're probably very familiar with without actually... Knowing that you are right if
2: you've ever heard of the idea that Jesus is both holy God and holy man, you know something about uh, yeah. Athanasius
0: yeah the entire uh, Christian idea of original sin is built largely around Augustine's writings
2: so they're very and we, we mentioned these just to get across how important and influential these guys are and they eventually are the driving forces behind coming to a consensus about the 27 book Canon of the New Testament. But it's important to remember that these were never. this was never an official decision of any governing body of Christians. It just kind of became the normal thing that people mm-hmm. used. But it's also important to remember that it took them 400 years to get to that point. Yeah.
1: So we've kind of finished up our New Testament canon. Uh, we've gotten all the way back to the earliest part that we could. Uh, but there is more within canon to talk about. So let's kind of push it back and talk about Hebrew
2: Bible now. Right, so if we're going to be moving backwards in time, I think the next important kind of event to mention is uh, something known as the Council of Jamnia or the Council of Yavna, and that's just two different ways of pronouncing the same city name. It's spelled Yavna. It's spelled Yavna, but we say Jamnia. Um, Wow, we should not even get into why that is. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The same reason why the book called Jacob in Greek is referred to as James in your English translations. Um, Neither here nor there. But um, at the Council of Jamnia, which we're not even sure if it was a real thing, whether it actually happened or whether it's just kind of a legendary thing. It supposedly happened around the year 100 CE, Um, and it was basically a meeting of leaders within the Jewish community to decide, kind of making a final decision of what was definitely in and what was definitely out of the canon. And it's important to remember that certain things weren't up for grabs. No one was going to kick the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, out of the canon. No one was even going to kick um, you know, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings out of the canon. But the books that were up to, for debate uh, were books like Esther, which, um, in case you're not yeah, aware... Why? And why, the, why would Esther be up for grabs? Well, in the Hebrew version of it, because there's also a Greek version, the Hebrew version of Esther, God is not mentioned not even one time. Um, so there's always the question of, does this book actually belong, in what's a sacred a sacred text?
0: And if you think about it, at the time, that's a fair argument,
2: right? It, and it definitely is, but it eventually ends up getting included because mm-hmm. it has the origin of Purim in it, which is a not a major Jewish holiday, but an important one. Yeah. Um, they also debated whether Song of Songs should be included in the canon or not. Um, so, and if any of you have read Song of Songs, you're probably aware of why it's 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 a love song even though it's just a love song because of centuries of kind of interpretation and allegorization, they decide to keep it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's and. but now to get to another example, there's also a book like Sirach, which is discussed at this council. Um, and they decide, no, it, it doesn't belong in the Canon. And again, it's probably just
1: cause it's too long and boring, right? <laughs> it,
2: it's long and boring. But again, the reasons not surprisingly are very similar to their later Christian counterparts. When they say it's just been written too recently. Mm-hmm. Um, Sirach was written after,
1: it's around one eighty BCE. Right, I was trying
2: to think of what that there. There is a definite cutoff point for Hebrew Bible, and, and we, can trace,
1: we can trace we can trace because it gives us the name of the high priest, and we can kind of yeah. place him in history. Yeah, Sirach
2: has a nice introduction to it. It's our our only complete copies of it are in Greek, um, and the guy who did the Greek translation was the grandson of oh. the original author, and so he you know has this nice little note he writes in at the beginning about translating his grandfather's. There's work. actually
1: someone who's argued that the beginning of Siroc is in itself uh an argument for putting it in the canon as well. That's oh, cool. that's um, interesting.
2: That's, that's neat. Yeah. Um the council of jamnia, I mean, isn't really closing the canon. It's kind of like the last gasp of competition to decide what's in or what's out because as I said, many books were not up for debate here. It's kind of just a finalization of the mm-hmm. canon really. Um But one of the more interesting things about the council, or what I find more interesting about it, is the way that the debate is phrased, where the question isn't, does this book belong in the canon? That's not the way they phrase it. Um, It's phrased as, is this a book that makes your hands unclean? Um, And the idea is that things that are holy, sacred books, books that do belong in the canon, will make your hands unclean because normal people shouldn't come in contact with holiness. Mm -hmm. Um, So the decision is, Esther and Song of Songs, yes, they make the hands unclean, i.e. they are holy sirak no i mean it's okay to be read but it shouldn't be confused with something divine yeah um so yeah so that's the council of yavna and if we're gonna keep moving back in time i guess the next thing to talk about as i promised a long time ago is uh the varying order of books between the hebrew bible and protestant old testament and even catholic and eastern orthodox old testaments so uh what this all comes down to, this or different order of the books, and even where we get the names of many biblical books from, all comes back to that uh, thing that we mentioned earlier, the Septuagint, this mm-hmm. Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which was, as I mentioned before, done around 200 BCE or begun around then.
1: And let's just take a side note to talk about what we mean when we say BCE and CE. Yeah, yeah I guess I, that's I something that we, we should have talk at this about. Point. That, yeah. Yeah, this is something that usually comes up in our classes. Yes. Uh, when we talk about, you know, we're we're obviously substituting B.C. and A.D. terms that you've probably heard about before um, for B.C.E. and C.E. Uh, and, you know, you want to say why that is?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so B.C.E. and C.E. stand for before common era and common era. And the biggest argument for using them is that um, B.C. and A.D. stand for before Christ, which, okay, whatever. But A.D. stands for Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. Um, and it's important to recognize when doing the academic study of religion that we're not dating things based on everybody's Lord. Um, and so we choose more faith neutral terms mm-hmm. such as B C E C E. And I think it's also important to recognize that Christianity doesn't have the corner market on dating systems. Um, if you're Muslim,
1: well, except for Christian mingle. <laughs>
2: dot com. <laughs> um, they don't support us. We yeah, promise. Not you. an official shout out. Um, but uh, so if you're Muslim in the religion of Islam, a new era begins in the year 622 with the Hijra, and so things are dated from that point. Yeah. Or in Judaism, things are dated from a theoretical creation of the world, and you just count forward from there. Mm-hmm. So using BCE and CE kind of softens the blow of the fact that we've chosen sort of the Christian epoch division um, and continue to use it, out of convenience mostly, because a lot of people use it.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, we're in religious studies, so we, we deal with scholars from a lot of different you know, faith traditions, backgrounds, non-faith traditions, whatever. So we just yeah. we have to be accommodating for and and find language that everyone can speak in um, and kind of feel included in. Because right. I mean, if Jesus isn't your Lord, then you're kind of left of saying, "How do I date things?" Because <laughs> I'm not in that
0: year. Yeah. <laughs> so moving back to the step two again.
2: Yeah. So back to the step two again. That was a tangent, but a, one worth taking, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the order of books in the Bible and the differences come the differences between them, comes from the Septuagint project, Um, whereas the Hebrew Bible, at apparently a very early stage, had a sort of three-part division between the Torah, slash five books of Moses, uh, the prophets, which in Hebrew is the Nevi'im. Nevi'im. And then other writings, which ketuvim means writings. Mm -hmm. Um, In this division, you can see it in the New Testament, uh, where references are made to the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Mm -hmm. You can see it in the introduction to Sirach, where the translator refers to the law of Moses, the books of the prophets, and the rest of the writings. Um, So this seems to be a very old traditional Jewish kind of system. However, when the Septuagint was done, the translators, who were also Jewish, but apparently had a slightly different tradition, as they, as is shown by their inclusion of more books, also had a different idea of how to order the canon. And their principle seemed to be to order things based on chronology. So you have, um, right after the Book of Kings, you get Chronicles and Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah and all of that stuff that kind of comes there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Christians adopted this order Not just because many more of them spoke Greek than Hebrew, but also because from within the Christian perspective, having the books of the prophets last, books like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, Malachi, things of this nature, Mm -hmm. provided a natural bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament for them because they felt like these prophets were talking about Jesus. So we've kind of reached the end of our journey at this point, I think. I mean, we could push further backwards in time, but if we go much past the step two again, we're going to get into issues of composition rather than canon, and that's and, a whole yeah, different... That's, that's something we're going to talk about yeah, later. Yeah, that'll be a different episode.
0: And a big thing to remember, guys, is the idea of canon and canonization is significantly more complicated than even what we're giving you today. Yes. Today we're giving you an idea of the canonization of one specific thing. And even though we're talking about... The Bible is it exists across different faith traditions. The idea of canonization and canonicity is, I mean, really a literary term more than anything else. There are canons of everything. I mean, we have the canon of Greek mythology and the canon of...
2: Western literature. And the
0: the canon of... Western Western, canon. The canon of Star Wars novels. And, I mean, it it exists across everything. It's a very, very complicated term.
2: Um, And even within the stuff that we talked about today, it may feel like we've given you a very detailed and complicated picture of how this canonization went, but we have barely scratched the surface of the real history of canonization of the Bible, even. It's a complicated thing. So,
1: the next time that somebody tells you to open your Bible to page 496213874, whatever. The uh,
0: longest Bible on Earth.
1: (laughs) It's the large, large, large print edition. Also, the
2: only person who told you to turn to a page number in the Bible.
1: (laughs) We just want you to think about the other people who are opening up to that same spot, uh, assuming that they've gone out and bought that super extra large edition that you have, uh, and think about the differences that uh, they're seeing versus what you're seeing, uh, and kind of be aware of the differences that do exist within biblical canons.
2: And remember that even when you use a word seemingly as simple as Bible, it's going to mean a lot of different things depending on who you're talking to.
0: And that's going to wrap us up for today, guys. We want to thank you so, so very much for tuning into episode one on Canon of the Religion Cast podcast. Um, stuff that you can do: please go to our Facebook page and add us. And if you're feeling very generous, go out and share our page and tell people about it. Share the podcast. The more viewers that we get, and the more successful we get. the The more hopefully, I mean, the more people will hopefully be educated by things like this.
1: And the better you'll feel, too, because you're the one that told everybody about it before they knew. (laughs) Exactly.
2: You'll be the hipster podcast listener. Yeah,
0: which is what everyone should try to be.
2: Exactly. And
0: one last thing, something that we're going to try to do at least every once in a while is give a shout out to different things in our personal community that we feel like is super beneficial and worthy of having a shout out made about it. Um, The thing that we're going to talk about this week is the Athens Area Homeless Shelter. We live in Athens, Georgia, an area where there is a lot of homeless people, where there's a large homeless population, and people who are in general need of food and help. If there's anything that you can do to help, please go add them on Facebook as well, Athens Area Homeless Shelter. Um, Get in contact with them. There's a lot of things you can do, like serve food, you can donate food, and things like that, and it would be super, super helpful. And that's all for today, guys. Uh, Thank you again for tuning in, and catch us again next time for Who Knows What. We have no idea what we're going to talk about.
1: So write us some suggestions. Boom.
0: Bye, guys. Later.
1: Bye.